What's up, everybody? This is Cortland from IndieHackers.com, and you're listening to the Indie Hackers Podcast. On this show, I talk to the founders of profitable internet businesses, and I try to get a sense of what it's like to be in their shoes. How did they get to where they are today? How do they make decisions both in their personal lives and at their companies? And what exactly makes their businesses tick? And the goal here, as always, is so that the rest of us can learn from their examples and go on to build our own profitable internet businesses. Today, I'm sitting down with the one and only Corey Zhu. Corey, how's it going? Yeah, it's good. I had no idea you had that whole thing memorized. Yeah, I assumed you would always read it. Intro probably 140 times by now. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. So we are in an Airbnb in Cape Town, South Africa, where you live. Yes. And I think you grew up in the United States. That's right. Yeah, I grew up in Boston, uh, in the suburbs of Boston. And how long have you been in South Africa now? So going on my fifth year now. Your fifth year in South Africa and your last three years as an indie hacker. So your background is, is pretty interesting. You were working as the CTO of a high growth startup that had hundreds of people and you went on a sabbatical and decided that you didn't want to come back and that you actually wanted to be an indie hacker. So for the last three years, you've been working on a variety of side projects. So you sort of choose breadth over depth. In total, your side projects are bringing in about $26,000 annual profit. And your goal is, I think, to reach the point where you never have to work again by <laughs> 2023. That's right. Yeah. So that's a pretty wild journey. Um, why breadth over depth? Why so many projects rather than just focusing on one project that's better than the others, that's growing faster than the others, and that can get you to your goal a little bit earlier? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, the, the answer might be that I'm not optimizing properly. I think uh, one thing that I value very, very highly is is enjoying what I'm working on and enjoying what I'm doing. And I I have a little bit of a short attention span, I would say. So, you know, sometimes I get a project to a certain a certain place and I kind of I get a little bit bored with it. And so I kind of wanna move on to the next thing, build a new thing, challenge myself in some different way. It's uh I think the term for it is shiny object syndrome. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You get the new idea and it sounds so amazing <laughs> and all the old ideas are suddenly boring and uh you move on to the new one. A lot of shiny objects. Yeah. <laughs> I think your approach though is a good one because you're not just sort of accidentally working on things. You've been very transparent about your entire process. And one of your top goals is that you want to enjoy the journey of being an indie hacker and that you want the entire process to be enjoyable, which I think is a great goal because for a lot of people, it's stressful. Yeah. It's, you're going without you know the sort of comfortable paycheck that you're used to, stressing over whether or not this thing you're investing a lot of time into is going to work. How do you enjoy the process of being a founder? We spend so much of our lives working and to not be doing, to not be enjoying your work, to be working to sort of you know, just for like to reach a certain income, you know, retirement level or whatever is, I think people can do that. But for me, it was the idea of just always making sure that I was having a lot of fun has been, has been super important to me. And, and that's really, I would say probably the primary reason why I have been doing the indie hacking for the last, for the last three years. This is just like, it's so much fun, like launching stuff, having, getting users and having people you know, do something with a product that you built and then like send you an email about like it's it's such a fun, rewarding feedback loop and it's uh yeah, it's a blast. How do you deal with the the stress? Actually, is there any stress at all for you? Like what are your <laughs> techniques for actually enjoying this when so many other people find it hard? You know, I suspect that one of the reasons why it's not that stressful is I probably keep my expectations very low. And yeah, so it might even be a bad thing. Like it might even be the case that it would be better if I was more stressed out because <laughs> because I'm probably like not trying hard enough to to be successful. But on the same token, like I don't want to be stressed out, and so you know maybe, maybe that's maybe that's fine. I don't know. I think I have a, a sticky note or a, a note somewhere at home that says like the secret to happiness is low expectations. Yeah, which sounds in a way like demotivational and not like that inspirational. Like oh, just keep yeah. your expectations low. But it it doesn't mean that you can't achieve something extraordinary. I mean, the fact that you're like working your way towards independence, towards a life where you basically don't have to do the things you don't want to do and all of your time is free, is very inspirational. And the fact that you can do it in a way where you don't have to rush, you don't have to be there tomorrow, and you can still get there. Yeah, maybe that's not the most ambitious Elon Musk-esque thing that you know <laughs> anyone's ever said, but at the same time, it's probably the case that you're a lot happier than Elon Musk. <laughs> well, he's probably very fulfilled in, in his own way. But I agree with that. And and it's also it's not it's not the case that stress equals ambition or something like that. Like I I think you, you kind of said this, but at one point during my indie hacky journey, I was sitting there and I was I was really not challenged at all. And I was thinking like, oh wow, I'm I'm like 
bored and and like probably even maybe too comfortable and you know with the whole shiny object syndrome thing like that was when I was like oh okay I need to like launch a harder product and I need to I need to do it in in a way that that is much more challenging to me because like I'm getting too complacent right now even though the numbers are, are trending correct like I'm I'm not stressed out and so I think like the the decoupling the ambition from the the stress you know like you you don't have to be stressed out to also achieve achieve things although maybe you do to achieve them at a certain pace i'm not sure so let's talk about how you got here because as i mentioned earlier you're the cto of a much larger company and you decided that wasn't for you but that was your life for many years i mean you were working um, not as an indie hacker but managing other people running a larger company what were some of the lessons you learned there and what was it like to be a part of a company that was that big so the company Demagi, I joined uh, in 2006, and I was employee number one. Essentially, it was me and the two co-founders, and then I was CTO till 2016, 2017, when I started the indie hacking journey. And in that period, Demagi went from three people to about 130. Um, so it, it wasn't VC. We didn't grow super fast. It was kind of like. 10, 20% a year. So it went from two to three, three to seven, seven to 10. But over that course of time, you know, eventually there was, there was 130 some odd people. There was like a 30 person tech team that I was sitting on top of. And my job was obviously very, very different than it was as sort of employee number two in the trenches writing code. Yeah. I mean, in terms of learnings, there were kind of like two parallel streams of learnings that I had. One was sort of a whole lot of skills that ended up being very useful for for my career, obviously engineering skills. I'm a, I'm a coder by background, um, and I, I do all the all the development of all my products. I do everything 100% by myself, basically. So obviously learning all the technical skills, a lot of the just sort of like how to be a reliable human being stuff. So like, you know, being good at email, like figuring out a backlog and a priority list, how to manage something like that. I did support for... The organization for a long time I did DevOps. Really. So, so I learned all these skills that would that would serve me uh, very very well in in my in my indie hacking journey. The other the other side of the the coin or the other thing that I learned is sort of like the types of work that I like and the types of of work that I don't like. And I'm gonna bring this back to this whole enjoyment thing again. Um, but you know, I realized like I love building stuff. I love coding. I love the creative process. I love tight user feedback loops. I love seeing my software or the things that I've built out in the wild, you know, performance reviews, I could take or leave. You know, it's, it's nice mentoring people. It's nice seeing people grow, but there's a whole organizational aspect to performance management, to onboarding. And in a growing organization, especially sort of at, at the top of an organization or near the top, your job just, you go from maker to manager. And so like I found myself, like I wanted to be in the trenches writing code still, but instead I was, you know, reviewing architecture docs and like, uh, you know, chairing meetings and, and these other things. And I, and I realized like, oh, like these, I can see why this is valuable and I can see why it's good that I'm doing them. And I can see why it's like really beneficial for the company that I, that I continue to do them, but they're not bringing me joy in the same way that this, you know, creative building process, this, this tight, you know, product feedback loop, this like user journey stuff, like all that, all the aspects of that I've come to like really love about about sort of the indie hacking, solopreneuring lifestyle were slowly like getting pulled away from me. And so that was, those were kind of the two elements was like one, like very practical, useful stuff. And then two, just like more introspective, figuring out what I wanted out of, out of a job and, and sort of like, you know, starting to think through like what that might mean for my, for my future. Yeah. Every large company that has a lot of employees has a lot of jobs and roles and tasks that only exist to support the fact that there's a ton of people totally. like doing performance reviews and all this kind of stuff. It's like, that's not actually yeah. building the product and building stuff is inherently super fun. The CEO of Stripe, Patrick has sent several emails where he spends lots of time doing different things within the company. And every now and then he'll take some time to just join one of the development teams and write code. Nice. And every single time he's super surprised by how much he just loves writing code, yeah. and how much more fun that is than a lot of other tasks that would seem to be pretty fun. So it's not shocking to me that once you see your job go from you know employee number one or two, writing the code, building the product, to suddenly you're managing a team of 30 people. You're kind of bored. You kind of wish you were doing some other things. <laughs> um, but also, like you've worked so hard in your career to get to that point. And that's yeah. kind of the, the role that gets the most respect and you know, you're the highest on the totem pole. So it can be pretty hard to leave that job and say, I'm going to set it on my own yeah. and start from scratch, making zero dollars on my own projects. Yeah. What did it look like 
to make that decision in the middle of your sabbatical? The CTO job, and, and I, should, I should add, like, I, I went back to the organization part-time after my sabbatical. So I took, a, I took sort of a six-month sabbatical where I was like, I don't know, I, I need to figure out my life, guys, and I'm going like, to try a few things. And then came back and I was like, yeah, I still want to be a part of this, but, but I don't want that, that leadership role anymore. It was tough, and it was tough coming back also because I no longer, I didn't realize how much cachet I had just because I had the power until like I didn't have the power. And then I would be like, wait, why does no one think that like all my suggestions are brilliant anymore? (laughs) And like, it was because like, oh, they're not just saying yes to me because I'm like the CTO. Um, So that was definitely an interesting adjustment. And at times was kind of like, oh man, like I really think I'm right here, but okay. I'll like, (laughs) but uh, no, I mean, ultimately like, I think I just, I took a lot of time to during the sabbatical thinking about like, okay, if I could just design my life from scratch, what would that look like? And I was like, okay, well, I have to make money. Like I'm not independently wealthy. I can't just like sit here like living. So, so I was like, okay, I need, I need something that will earn me money. And I was like, and I want to like enjoy it. And like, I know that sounds like really, really simple. And, and I should say like, I don't, those aren't necessarily the only two things that you should optimize on. I think Elon Musk wants to save the world. And like, I'm so in awe of that guy. But like, for me, I was like, what's right for me for right now is, is I want to enjoy this. And so once it became, once that became clear to me, it then became clear to me that I wasn't going to enjoy that CTO role uh, the same way that I would enjoy sort of like pushing on the indie hacker thing and and trying to make that work. Do you have any fears around financial security and like getting rid of what I'm sure was a cushy salary relative to being a broken hacker with no income coming in. (laughs) Well, it was a social enterprise and so it wasn't that cushy, but it was, uh, yeah, it was pretty easy because I was throughout the whole past three years, I've never actually been full time on, on, on my sort of personal projects. So I have continued to work part time for Demagi, the organization I was CTO of, and I continue to do some freelancing, which is like, extremely lucrative on an hourly basis. And so I always knew that I had the this like easy fallback plan of, you know, I'm a person with like I'm a good enough coder that I will always have a safety net of being able to take on contract work or get a job if if worse comes to worse. And so I knew I that wasn't really going to be an issue and at at no point did I even really dip below my sort of burn rate except during the sabbatical where I was earning basically nothing. So it was never really a risk for you then to quit. It was always just a a, a positive experience of finding yourself and potentially building an amazing life or worst case scenario, just working as a developer. Yeah. And when you say it like that, it sounds like maybe I should have gone bigger or something. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I, I played it very safe, actually. Maybe in hindsight, I should have taken a bigger, bolder step. But it's interesting in that, like, you know, our lives are long. Like, like you said at the top, like, my goal is to get to financial independence, passive income, sort of fully supporting me in by 2023. And yeah, like, if, if I wanted to be more ambitious, I, you know, maybe I could have done it already. Maybe I could do it next year. But, you know, what, three years in the, in the scheme of a life to sort of hit that point, like, that doesn't, it doesn't necessarily make me think that that's too slow. Okay. So let's talk about, your very first project that you worked on out of the gate, you quit working full-time. You decided to be a freelancer and stay on your other company part-time. And the first project you made, which is still your most revenue-generating project, was called placecard.me. What is it exactly? How does it work? And why did you decide that that would be the very first thing that you would build? Oh, man. Yeah, it's it's almost still embarrassing for me to talk about it. And when people like when this comes up at, at dinner parties and stuff, I'm I'm kind of like, oh, like I have to like explain the place card thing. <laughs> um, but essentially, like if if you've ever been to a wedding, you know, you often will see either on the table or like on sort of like a table by themselves. There's like a bunch of place cards with people's names and the tables that they're sitting at, and then you grab the thing and you take it to the table. And so. My place card me, uh, my app is basically a way to make those yourself. So you upload a spreadsheet of your guest lists and the tables, and it just sort of generates that for you as a downloadable PDF that you can sort of cut up and fold yourself. And that that's I've got a bunch of different designs that you can choose from. I've done some work to sort of like add different layouts for all these different printable paper formats that that exist. Um, but but that's basically all it does. 
You're basically yeah. making weddings cheaper, cheaper and easier for people who are stressed out trying to plan stuff and totally. figure out how to get these place cards. And what happened was it was our wedding was the genesis of the idea. So we found out three days before our wedding that we like had to provide these things. And we were like, oh, like, okay. And then I wasn't going to like sit there. Like you could download all these word templates, but I was like, I'm a coder. I'm not like going to, I refuse to sit here and type these like names yeah. into these, <laughs> into like all these. It should be automated. Days. Yeah, it should be automated. And, and it turns out there is like this way that you can do it in Microsoft Word. It's called mail merge. And if you know that that's the thing you need to do, then you can like figure that out. But anyway, so we did actually do it all by, we ended up writing them by hand of, of all things um, because we thought that would be like a little classier. But I was like, surely this must, there must be a better way to do this. And then, so when I started my sabbatical, I was just sort of like, I had no idea what I was going to do. I knew I wanted to like try my hand at, at indie hacking or um, I don't know if that's a verb, but... Uh, you can use it however you want to use it. <laughs> but uh, so I, I kind of just like, I, I was just throwing ideas at the wall. This was one of the ideas and did some research. There wasn't really anything that was that good. And I was like, okay, well, like, it seems like this is a, like, I had this need, probably other people had this need. And that was, that was basically it. So how did you actually get this in the hands of your first paying customers? And how long did that process take? Cause I know oh. a lot of companies will take, you know, many months or even years to get from the point of, I've got this brilliant idea to the point where someone has paid me my first dollar for this. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and going back to that, you know, maybe my expectations are too low, Thing. So my, my goal for the sabbatical was to make literally $1 in six months, which again is like a super risk averse goal maybe. But uh, yeah, so I would say it took, took about six months to, to make the first dollar. And yeah, the site, it only took like a week or two to actually build the site. So I built the site. I you know had no... Obviously, when you first put a site up on the internet, there's no... Basically, yeah, it doesn't traffic. exist until yeah. Google decides it exists. So I'm trying to figure out you know, how do I like SEO this thing? Where can I like go be one of the like, where can I like go find forums and link to this thing? And it was like, I was doing all these sort of like, mar- I was learning about these marketing things that you do and then and then trying them and feeling a little sort of dirty about it um, because like you don't want to go, you like go into the forum and you pretend to be adding value, but then you're like always just trying to sneak in a link to your thing. But uh, yeah, eventually, so I, I like ran some AdWords stuff. I mean, I blogged about all this stuff and I was... At the time, this was sort of in the heyday of Medium, before Medium kind of went off the rails. But so I was blogging, and then I was I was putting stuff on Medium, and it was getting picked up by like Hacker Noon and Free Code Camp, and, and I was I was actually I was cross posting on Indie Hackers as well. And eventually, all of that, and I was just blogging about the journey, what I was doing, and then all of that blogging, I would stick in a backlink to Placecard me with like I'd be like print place cards and wedding place cards and I, I would stick it in my blog text. and eventually it started slowly like climbing up the ranks of Google through that process so then eventually sort of like three four or five months after launch it was sort of like you know somewhere on page one bottom of page one maybe page two or three for a few obscure keywords and so then just a slow trickle of of money so I think it you know it made one dollar and then the next week it made one dollar again so I was selling templates for one dollar wow <laughs> After, because I I started at ten dollars and I was like not making any sales. Like I lowered to five and I lowered to five. Like no sales. I was like I just lower it to dollar. Like I need to make this dollar. <laughs> and so and then it was like one dollar a week and then it was like two dollars a week and then it was like three dollars a week and then and then sort of at some point it got to like it reached the critical mass of being high enough on Google that it was actually mm-hmm. getting like reasonable traffic and then that was when that was when it started to go up to you know what the what are still very modest uh, traffic and revenue numbers but but our uh, yeah, much better than a dollar every six months. <laughs> so a lot of people, when they start something, expect the users and the traffic and the customers to just magically appear. And when they realize that that's not the case, they spend, kind of like you did, months looking at different avenues, different channels to try to get customers in the door. And it's really easy to give up when it doesn't work after a few weeks of doing that. Yeah. Why didn't you give up and move on to a different idea? Why did you yeah. stick it out for six months after your product was already built with nobody paying for it? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that was actually the, the most pivotal moment of the whole process for me was deciding to continue in that moment where I was like, this just isn't working. Like, this is a terrible idea. No one wants this. Like, just stop, go do something else. So I, what I did is I sat down and I was like, okay, just like rationally write down every possible reason why this couldn't be working. And so I was like, okay, maybe like no one would ever pay for this. Like maybe it's just like a terrible idea that no one would ever pay for. And then I would go on Etsy 
And these people were selling basically the exact same thing, but you couldn't do all this like automatic placement of names and all this other stuff. And they were like selling it for like $8 a template. And I was like, okay, no, people, people will pay for this. Like, and I basically went through all these reasons and eliminated them one by one. And at the end of it, I was like, I know that this product is better for the thing it's trying to do than anything else on the internet. Like I, I, you know, I'm probably like the, I never thought I would say the sentence in my life, but I like, I'm probably like one of the top 100 most knowledgeable people about place cards in the world. (laughs) (laughs) So like, I know that this thing is better than anything else that's out there. And if that's true, like it can't be the case that it's not going to make some money if people are also paying for this thing, which I also saw. And so I was like, okay, it has to be traffic. Like it, it just, it has to be traffic. And so I know that if I can just crack this traffic nut, then like, I'll get on a path to someone. And at that point, honestly, it, it helped to have like very unambitious goals because I, I even remember thinking like, okay, like if I could just get this thing to like a hundred dollars a month, like that'll like pay for my breakfasts and that'll be like, that'll be like a nice little, like that'll be like a nice little, like I learned a lot that six months I'll have this little bonus in, in my back pocket every month. But yeah, so that I just, I knew I could get it somewhere and I didn't know whether some, somewhere was like $5 a month or a hundred dollars a month or a thousand dollars or, you know, I, I still don't really know what the ceiling is. So I just, I was like, well, if that's true, then I like, it's not time to quit. You know, I've, I've been on other podcasts before I was on the YC podcast. I think the title of the episode was your whole goal is not to quit as yeah. a founder, because the reason why most businesses fail is because the founders quit, They're not making money fast enough, et cetera, et cetera. And so if you could figure out a way to structure your life, to spend less money or to grow your company faster and make it more fun to work on, then you're less likely to quit, which means you're more likely to stick around until you figure things out, which is exactly what happened to you because you kept your expectations low enough that it was never a complete failure. It was never like, oh, this has taken six months, therefore I have to quit. Your goal is just to make a dollar. <laughs> and the fact that making a dollar is just so small and so doable, it, it's cool to see the fact that it helped you get to the point where you figured things out. And it seems like you figured things out successively a few times since then, because that was what, 2017 when you started or 2016? Yeah, that was uh, March of 2017 was when I started. Yeah. And that first year, how much money did you make? <sighs> like $800 maybe? And in the last year, how much money did place cards me make? In so in twenty seventeen it was about a thousand dollars. In twenty eighteen it was about ten thousand dollars. And then in twenty nineteen it was about twenty thousand dollars. So it's like doubled from its ten thousand dollar revenue run rate in one year. How did you figure out how to make the revenue double? What what goes into that? Yeah. I mean it's it's interesting and in, because I've kind of I haven't worked on it that much this past year. And so honestly, I think a a decent amount of that is just organic growth like because of that because of it being the best thing out there i think it naturally has this positive feedback loop where the more people discover it the more they want to use it the more they refer other people the more they uh, come back to it Um, so i think that's been a big part of it i I have done i've continued to do small small things I've, i've played with pricing a lot i mean that's that's always been the biggest lever raising prices and then sort of like uh, making the free tier worse. I, I haven't eliminated the free tier entirely, um, but there's there's a free tier where essentially you can you can make blank place, place cards without a design that also have a link like the place card me branding on them. So <laughs> Do like, people want that at their wedding? Nobody wants that on their wedding. But like, website. <laughs> nobody wants their that on their wedding. But the like people who run the lunchroom at schools who are using it to make like chocolate chip cookie labels or whatever like they're they don't care. yeah they don't care um, so i think and i'm happy to you know they're never going to pay for anything and I, i'm happy to to serve them but so this year i've been experimenting a bit with expansion revenue uh so i started adding other offer like other offerings in a similar space so i, I do table cards now as well uh so like that was the thing you put in the middle of the table to tell people what the table name is or the table number i might go into like seating like it's, it's all very like crazy wedding stuff that I never thought I would be into or, or sort of focused on. And then I think the, the other aspects of that question is just that like my attention and my energy has shifted into some other projects. I'm honestly, I'm probably not doing everything I could be to, to be growing it. And, and that's, that's something I often think about is like, well, shouldn't you just suck it up? Like suck it up for a year, do some stuff that like you don't think is that fun and just like see if you can like double place card me because that's going to be way, that's going to contribute way more to your bottom line than launching and fourth product that makes $50 a month. <laughs> right. So I think about that a lot. Uh, and 
Yeah, I, I don't know. I haven't. <laughs> you haven't decided to do that. Huh? I haven't decided to do it all that often. Um, but what would that look like to do things that aren't that fun to you, but that you're pretty sure would help you grow the revenue and, and grow it faster than any other option? Like what would I do? Yeah. There's a few big ideas that I imagine would move the needle. I think one would be setting up some kind of like affiliate referral program. So the entire, I've learned all this stuff about the wedding industry by sort of being in the space. But one thing that I've learned is the entire wedding industry runs on affiliates. So there's all these wedding blogs and there's a whole community of wedding bloggers and they are referring people left and right and they're all making money from affiliate revenue for getting a kickback whenever someone buys something that, that they follow a link. And I think that would be a huge way to get more traffic because so many people are just getting their, they're building their wedding based on something on Pinterest or right. a blog that they follow or whatever else. And they're like, I do well on Google, but if you never even enter the search term into Google, then I'm still missing on that traffic. So that's one. I think getting into the printing game would be another huge one because like I charge $5 for a digital template. I need to sell a lot of digital templates to make any sort of money. But if you're selling printed cards, like people typically charge up to even a dollar per card sometimes. So I'm talking 200 person wedding, $200. I have no idea how much that actually costs. And one of the downsides of being in South Africa is just like, it's, it's most of my audience or, or the market for place card me is, is in the States or in, in Europe. Like, so it's, it's harder for me to figure out how to deliver a physical cut place card I'm sure I could do it, but it, it doesn't sound that fun to sort of like contact a hundred vendors, negotiate like these terms, figure out, you know, how that would work and what the revenue split would. Be. You would rather be coding. <laughs> yeah, but you're making me feel bad about it. <laughs> <laughs> well, nevertheless, your revenue is growing and it doesn't sound like you've had to do a crazy amount of work to get it to grow. And, and assuming nothing else changes, it'll probably continue doing that in the future. And I think one of the coolest things about the way that you've sort of run your journey as an indie hacker is that you're keenly aware of how much time you are spending on all of these projects. It's not just sort of a nebulous, oh, you know, the revenue grew and I spent a decent amount of time on it. Like, you know, down to the hour, how much time you spent working on PlaceCard Me in 2019. So what is that number? I'd have to look, but I know that the, the number for the total is around 450 hours. 450 hours total working on PlaceCard Me. Yeah. That's crazy. That's basically like what sixty work days or something. I know it's like yeah, it's like twelve work weeks. Wow! Um, and that has resulted in you making thirty thousand dollars in a project that basically not only generates income but increases the revenue it generates passively on the side for you while you work on more fun things that lets you code more. For now, <laughs> this is kind of the holy grail, though. I talk to a lot of founders who want to be indie hackers and. The ideal thing is that you create passive income where you don't have to continually put in more and more hours to build your business and grow the revenue. But it's really hard to do that because as your business grows, your ambition grows. And you have this feature you want to put in and you have these customers you didn't have before. You want this request. You have more email, et cetera, et cetera. So you end up working even more as your company gets bigger sometimes or yeah. just the same amount. How do you build a company that's actually passive and that grows in revenue? Yeah, well, I mean, I think it was done very deliberately from almost from day one. So I think that was a, it was a strategic decision and it eliminated huge swaths of potential products that I could take on. So pretty, pretty early on, I was, I was quite clear that like, you know, when I was, when I was at Damagi, you know, as the CTO, like I, it was also the, the bottom line, like all the buck stopped with me when it came to like a server's on fire. And so I just, I had so many late nights where I'd get an email and like something's not working and I'd, you know, I'd be out at a bar or something. I'd have to go home. I'd have to like, I was like, I don't want to be in that position. So I was like, okay, I, I like, I need to do something that is not ever going to be mission critical. Like I like, so, so I came up with all these criteria and one of them was like, it needs to not be mission critical. The more passive, the better. It shouldn't be something that scales with people. Like I knew I wanted to stay very, very small, if not sort of independent. So I was like, okay, I can't do any sort of like services model. I can't, I can't do something that requires like a big support team. And so I, I did like as silly and, and almost like dumb as an idea of this like place card thing is like it, it was chosen because it had a lot of positive attributes that I knew would allow me to, to sort of get to the lifestyle, like have, have the type of business that I knew I wanted to run. Um, and that's true with sort of with all the things that I, I've been working on so far. This is a super important idea in starting companies. It's the idea of a validation checklist. You sort of have a checklist of items 
requirements that your business has to meet in order to be a successful business or a business that's actually enjoyable to run. And it sounds like yours was so informed by basically your time as a C2 of this huge company. And it was just a list of don'ts. Like, don't do this. <laughs> don't have a huge support team. Don't be mission critical, et cetera, et cetera. But like you said, it was very deliberate. And as a result, you have a business that can grow passively. And you also have certain things that probably weren't on your validation checklist. And as a result, like, you know, maybe you don't like those. You didn't have an item on your checklist that said, work on a business that I'm proud to tell my friends and family about. <laughs> and so now you're yeah. like, oh, I'm embarrassed to be running this place card business and I don't yeah. want to talk about it. But uh, work in an industry that you want to work in. Uh, yeah. You know, the wedding industry is, is strange. And, and honestly, my customers are great. And, and almost 99% of the feedback I get is everybody's super positive. But it is a strange, a strange space. And that was also not in the checklist. <laughs> <laughs> I think having a, a really good checklist that's, tailor-made to you personally is one of the best advantages that you can have as a founder. And it's something that comes as a result of basically working in lots of projects and having lots of experience. Really like actually internalizing what you don't like. My own validation checklist for things is basically just a list of things that I hated from previous projects that I worked on. How did your list change as a result of working on Placecard Me for a few years? And how have you sort of applied that to the new projects that you started? Yeah, so... Certainly, the project you can tell your friends about is is sort of. I wish that was on the checklist because I also can't tell them about my newest project. Really, not not because I'm ashamed of it, but just because it's really hard to explain to people what it is, uh, and especially people who aren't sort of coders or in like the startup ecosystem. The industry is definitely one. So I think I forget who said this, but um, someone I read somewhere that was advice that I wish I had taken with PlaceGuard Me, which is like, choose the customer that you want. And so like, you know, I think, I think a lot of developers would love to have developers as a target customer because you understand them. They're, I mean, developers have some downsides, right. uh, but by and large, you sort of understand them. They, they can overcome bad UX usually. They're sort of willing to tolerate bugs. They're very understanding about, you know, certain things. So I, I think Ben Ornstein, uh, the founder of Tuple or Tuple talks about this as well, sort of like how, how nice it is to build a product for developers. And so I think that was one takeaway from PlaceCard. Like, yeah, you know, stressed out people planning weddings, maybe not the best customers. Thankfully, if you have sort of like a very simple product, then then you don't bear the brunt of that too much. But uh, but choosing a customer base that you would you would want to work with is one. I'm interested in recurring revenue. I haven't cracked that nut yet. So I think that's another one where I under like you said, you know, PlaceGuard Me will just continue to grow passively. Like I don't believe that is true. No, I think. Well, I mean, already, you know, because at least in part because I'm transparent with the numbers and everything else. Like people, people saying the same things you're saying. Usually, like, well, this is a great business. Like no work. It's like super easy to build <laughs> and just like make like. You know, so let me uh, compete with PlaceGuard Me. Exactly. Um, so I have seen basically clones uh, start popping up. I, I know. I think you were talking to. Uh, who was the founder of One Second Every Day about how like clones aren't really going to threaten you because those people don't have the same the, passion the same, and the yeah. same work. Although maybe in my case, like I'm not sure I have that same passion for <laughs> me either. So maybe maybe the clones can come and and usurp me. Um, it's another very common item to put on your your sort of validation checklist. Work on something that you're passionate about, so you have that yeah. competitive advantage against other people, and you're going to yeah. stick with it. And you can't really be threatened by clones of people yeah. who don't care that much. But that's a good one. That wasn't on your list for face card me, <laughs> nope. and so nope. On to the next thing. Yeah. Anyway, so that's why I think recurring revenue is much more interesting to me. Um, and I know that's like a common sort of stair step approach that that people take to bootstrapping is to sort of like get get the one time sale thing out, get the e commerce thing out, and then sort of like jump into like the harder SaaS models where you know it's a it's a slower ramp, but it's much more predictable and much more long term viable. Um, so that's that's another thing I'm thinking about um, just to sort of protect myself from either clones or Google just sort of. Like, you know, I think 90 something percent of my traffic comes from Google. So if Google changes their algorithm in some way that penalizes me, then again, sort of my place card me could evaporate overnight almost. So let's talk about this business that you said was uh, almost too difficult to explain to anybody (laughs) who's not a developer or a startup founder uh, because you just so happen to be on a show that's listened to primarily. By developers and startup founders, so give it a shot. What is Pegasus, and why did you decide to start this particular business? So yeah, so Pegasus is basically it's, it's a code template that allows you to get up and running with with a SaaS application quicker. And so 
you know, in a typical web framework, you have sort of like your base language, which might be Python or Ruby or JavaScript, and then you have your framework, which might be Django or Rails or Node, maybe. And then it essentially sits on top of one of those on Django specifically and provides a lot of stuff out of the box, including sort of like basic user stuff. So like user account management, forgot password, all that type of stuff, login with Google, some like team-based stuff. So like if if you have collaboration features and sort of this multi-tenant, you know, siloed areas where you have different organizations working, then it, it provides some stuff out of the box for that. Is a UI template and basic Stripe integration and a few other things. So the ideal user is kind of like a Django developer who wants to start a project or a company and they want to get further ahead than just starting with nothing but Django. They want to kind of start like a few months ahead in development. Yeah, maybe weeks. But, <laughs> <laughs> but um, exactly. And, and again, it goes back to this like one thing that I think about a lot, which is just like time is even more important than my like, People say time is money, but like time is actually the only really like true currency of of anything. And so, like you know, if if I'm going to sit here and do the same, you know, four things every time I make a new project, then like what, like why wouldn't I want to automate that? And then like the, the theory is then like why wouldn't you want to pay for that? Like if you could save a week of development time, that's a good trade to make. And so if you want to use Django and you like the way that I've structured things and and want these features, then the theory is that this is a great investment for someone to choose to use. So how's that panning out so far? Have people found it to be a good investment? And do you have anybody paying money for it yet? Yeah. So I've got a few people. I mean, so I, I charge $200 for it right now. Uh, it's a one-time sale for sort of like a one-year license, which I, I haven't even really figured out exactly what that means. Um, but it, it at least means that I that you get a year of upgrades and and once a year comes around, I'll I'll figure out, you know, in more detail. And yeah, it's averaged about a sale a week, I would say. So um, it's, it's uh, you know, anywhere from the $500 to $1,000 a month right now. I'm excited about it because I think there's I think it's it's already valuable, but it's not nearly as valuable as it could be. Um, and so it's something that I'm I'm like I'm still excited to keep working on it and making it better. And I, I think it has the potential to be to be really great, but it it needs honestly it needs it needs some some love first. It took you six months to make your first dollar for Place Card Me. How long did it take to make your first dollar for Pegasus? Almost since I launched Start Place Card Me, because I started working on Pegasus in that period where. Place card me was not making any money, and I was like, oh, "This is not going to work. I should like, I should be hedging. I should, even you know, two and a half years ago was when I first sort of broke ground on it. And all I knew at the time, I had been reading a lot of sort of like bootstrapper porn or whatever you want to call it, but like uh, all these articles. And and uh, since I was just getting started, info products was something I was like, okay, like that's that's the thing that people use. You know, like Justin Jackson got his start with. You know, marketing for developers or whatever. Nathan Barry had a bunch of ebooks before he sort of built ConvertKit, and I was like, okay, like uh, I should, I'll build an info product, and I know a lot about Django, so I'll like, so I bought the domain Build with Django, and I, I just sort of like parked this landing page there, and I was like, what is this? This will, this will be cool. And then for two years, I was like, this info product idea was just kind of like spinning in the back of my head, and I would, I would work on it in sort of downtime, and and then eventually, I was like, oh no, I like. I'm not going to enjoy building an info. <laughs> like I don't actually like writing technical content that well, and I don't really like making screencasts. And I was okay. So like, how can I turn this into code? And that's when that's when the idea for converting it into a SaaS template came. And and this, the SaaS template thing is not is not like a novel idea. Like these things exist in lots of lots of other frameworks and and other places. And and they're they're kind of like I think growing in the indie hacking community right now. But. Uh, there wasn't a good. I couldn't find one for for Python and Django, so I was like, "Oh, this is perfect. Like, this is this is my framework. This is like I know this really well." And there's like a gap here again, and so, and that was you know two and a half years ago, and then I launched Pegasus in, I think it was June of 2019, so about six months ago, and actually I made a presale before it was even li- like maybe a week before it was live. I made a presale, and then sort of within a few days of launch, I had made a few sales because I had been building up an email list over time. Um, so Pegasus had much from launch to cu- first customer 
had much quicker traction than place card me, uh, which, which was fun, although it, it hasn't grown at all since. So it's, it's been very flat ever since, ever since launch, which, which is sort of like, I haven't been trying to market it. And so that's kind of, that's why <laughs> I hope. <laughs> where, where did these customers come from? Why was it so much easier for you to get customers paying for Pegasus than it was for, for place card me? Yeah. That's a good question. Well, so one is, so after I built that domain and I parked it, I sort of, when I thought I was going to build an info product, like I was always trying to build artifacts on the internet that might be useful one day. So I had this build with Django site. I published a few blog posts. I was was starting to collect email addresses. I had like a small audience from the people who had been following my blog. There was just this sort of like parked asset that was targeting the people who I wanted to target with Pegasus that was collecting, you know, handful of email addresses a month. Um, but so when I launched it, I could hit up that list and leading up to the launch and then the actual launch sort of announced that it was available and a few people were, were still interested. And that was another thing I did much better the second time around was like I, I had so many conversations with... So when people would sign up, I would email them set of questions. I'd ask if they'd be willing to jump on the phone. So I, I think I was just, I w- it was a lot more mature of a product development process as well. I was talking, I was actually talking to my customers before launching the thing, which, you know, is surprisingly uh, worse. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think it was a, it was a better informed product that I, I expected to be more successful from day one. And it's not shocking that the project where you actually found yourself talking to customers was the one where you were selling to developers, people you like talking <laughs> to, versus the one where you're selling to stressed out people planning weddings. Yeah, although I did talk to several of my friends who, who were getting married. One of the difficult things about selling to developers, even though they're a demographic that you might understand well, even though they're a demographic that has generally a lot more disposable income than the average person, is that developers are kind of spoiled they all think they can build whatever app they're using and don't want to pay for it. And then we're so used to open source projects giving us so much stuff for free that we kind of sneer when someone wants to charge, in your case, $200 for a project that would even save us you know, maybe dozens or hundreds of hours of time. Yeah. How do you convince developers to actually pay for something? I don't really try. Because <laughs> there are, you're totally like, a huge percentage of developers do think like that. Some of them don't. And I think the people who are I'm not interested in trying to have an argument with a developer who thinks that they can, you know, build Twitter with open source Linux <laughs> clients or like I think uh I would rather spend my time uh making something great and having the people who it's who want it take it than trying to convince people who are going to sneer at it to uh to try and convince them to to give me money because I, I just don't think they're going to. <laughs> what does the marketing message say if I were to go to like Pegasus's website. Like, what do you what do you say to get people interested and explain to them what this you know arguably complex product even is, and then who it's for? Yeah, oh, I mean, I think the tagline is a is a Django SaaS template for your next big idea or something like that, and that's probably part keyword optimization and part actually what it does. The basic message is sort of start with a good foundation because it's one part. This is done for you. And then it's one part, this is done for you by someone who hopefully knows what they're doing. So I don't claim to be this like remarkable coder or anything like that, but I, ha- I have been using Django for almost as long as it's existed, like pre 1.0, which is know, seven, eight years ago or something like that. So like, if you're a person who's just started using Django, and, and I, most of my customers are not sort of the Django gurus who've built 100 applications, like th- these, those guys already have templates. Uh, they, they already have sort of systems like, paradigms that they like. But if you're someone who's just getting started and you sort of are interested in, well, like how does someone with a bunch of experience do things? Then I think those, those are the people I'm trying to speak to. Uh, And so I'm saying like, yeah, you get all this stuff and it's like done in a way that's like, you know, there's a hundred ways to to do everything, but it's done in one way that someone thinks isn't terrible who knows something. (laughs) It's pretty cool to see like the the specific niche you can target because like you said it's not just all Django developers it's only like kind of novice or newer Django developers who also want to build you know an ambitious new product from scratch it's like a bunch of different overlapping circles and you're like right in the middle of all of them totally but the internet's a big enough place where if those overlapping circles are each big enough you can still have many thousands of customers enough to potentially sustain your entire lifestyle off just the revenue yeah, absolutely. And I view it as in with the place card thing too, is like you establish a foothold in the most like tiny specific niche that you possibly can. And then once you're once you own that niche or once you're sort of like 
sure that your product is like really good for that particular niche, then you can start expanding out. But to get those first users, the more you can niche, the better, right? I mean, then, then like you're really speaking to them and they're, they're, you know, they feel like, oh yeah, this, this is for me. And that's a huge advantage, I think, in any, probably any endeavor that you would do. So Place Card Me has done pretty well as a relatively passive endeavor. You don't spend that many hours on it in the, in the present. What about Pegasus? Do you think it will succeed as well as sort of a passive business? And if so, what do you think will contribute to the fact that it is a passive income generator rather than something that takes a lot of sustained effort on your part to maintain and grow? Yeah, well, it's certainly designed that way. I mean, so, so the, I mean, the fir- first thing I'll say is like Pegasus doesn't feel close to finish yet. So it's, it's certainly not passive yet. I think it's worth what I believe in, in an obviously biased perspective that it's worth what it costs, but it could be way, way better. And I, and I know that. So my, my first goal is to just like make it way better. Could it ever get complete? I mean, not in the sense that like libraries are always upgrading. There's always right. bug fixes, there's always patches. Um, but the whole product is again designed like it's a code template. Like you get the code template, you're kind of done. Like no one's going to call me in the middle of the night because the code template is down. <laughs> the code template is a code template. So again, I it it was pretty deliberately chosen to be a future passive income machine that you know fits fits the same sort of lifestyle goals that I have. It's kind of like the same the, the same template for Place Card Me, where because you didn't do something that has recurring revenue, you're able to provide sort of like a one shot piece of value to your customers and then they buy it, they download it, they print it, whatever, and then you're sort of done with them. You're not going to get a ton of customer support calls. You know, to keep adding new features to make this particular user happy. But on the downside, you don't get the recurring revenue that makes it easy to sort of grow and become a self-sufficient indie hacker. Yeah. What do you think you're going to do in the future about that? You said you're exploring this idea with, with recurring revenue. Will that come in the form of a totally new product? Or are you going to add that onto Pegasus? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, actually, the I don't even know if I should bring this up at this point, but so I actually have a third product <laughs> <laughs> that I sort of built on a whim. It was just like a, it was a, I built it over the holidays in 2016. I, it was a toy project. I like wanted it in the world. I, sometime in 2017, I decided to, or in 2018, I decided to just like add a paid tier to it. And so this, this product makes like almost nothing by, by my current standards, which is like a hundred dollars a month or something. Right. But I'm first going to add it there because it's a nice testing ground. And one of the reasons why Pegasus is such a great product for me is that like I love building and launching these products and I can use them to inform how Pegasus should be built and what what should be in it. So like I can add subscriptions to this thing and I'll be like, okay, that's how subscriptions works. That's how recurring revenue works. And then now, okay, Pegasus gets a recurring revenue module or gets a subscription module, however you want to describe it. That's where I'm going to start. And then beyond that, I have like a big internal struggle right now over like, okay, am I going to like actually do the B2B subscription thing and like sign myself up for like a little bit more of a like on-call? I might have to have like a support SLA and and these other things, or am I gonna continue to like try and find ways to continue to do this sort of like lifestyle project hack? And uh, I haven't figured out the answer to that yet. Yeah, decisions, decisions. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'll let you know in a year. <laughs> uh, well, you've been doing, from my perspective, a great job, Corey. You've gotten a lot further than a lot of aspiring indie hackers. Um, have gotten so far in their journey. And, and I think you're making it look kind of easy <laughs> launching all these different projects and sticking with them and never really quitting even even when the going looks tough. What for you have been sort of the ups and downs of being an indie hacker and making the transition from you know working a full-time job to sort of depending on your own projects to bring in some of your income? Like you said, I mean, I, I guess I haven't taken enough risks and, and it has felt relatively easy because I had the sort of the freelancing income and the part-time job and these other things. Uh, certainly with the indie, ha- the indie hacking stuff, the highs are higher and the lows are lower. So, you know, like I'll go three weeks without making a sale of Pegasus and I'll just get like really down in the dumps and I'm like, oh, this is, product is stupid. I hate it. And, and then I'll make a sale and I'll be like, ah, oh, this is amazing. <laughs> like, so it's definitely like my identity is tied up in it much more in a way than that I think only founders really get their identities mixed up with with the companies that they have. I think um, so. That's that's a big one, and it's it's both a positive and a negative. The I think I've been very very fortunate in a number of ways. One of the ways that I suspect will end at some point is this whole like passive up into the right 
behavior that I've been seeing with place cards and with all of my projects, really. And so I have to believe that at some point, something's going to happen and I'm going to go through this crisis and that's going to be really bad. <laughs> it's going to be really like, I'm be like, oh, I thought this was so easy. And turns out that no, it's just like only easy until you start to make enough money that someone actually cares enough to usurp you. And maybe I like cross that threshold and then everything plummets. So I am nervous about sort of the the fact that things have been a little, you know, almost too smooth so far. Every founder I talk to has this fear at the back of their mind that everything's going to come crashing down and there's some future point where it's going to stop working because it's, it's pretty normal to have a job where someone's giving you a paycheck and you're like, well, there's this magical fountain of money uh, that pays me every two weeks. But when like, you're the one like creating that revenue stream and you see every aspect of it, you're just like, when is it going to stop? Right. When are people going to stop paying me? And it's, you know, luckily for most people that fear never gets realized. Uh, and it's something that you eventually just grow out of. But uh, <laughs> it's funny to see that you're still sort of in the midst of, of wondering if that's going to be the case. Oh yeah, definitely. Um, and that's, that's, Reassuring to hear that that's... Uh, it goes away. <laughs> well, it helps getting bought. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your advice for somebody who's listening to this and they're you know, maybe working a full-time job and considering quitting or, or moving to part-time so they can become an indie hacker? Or maybe advice for someone who just got started and is trying to figure out all this on their own? Yeah. I mean, we've kind of been talking about it the whole time, but I think my advice is just like, it's actually much easier than you think and again like maybe i'm just a product of luck or or something but like for me it feels like success is inevitable if you don't like if you keep trying and you give yourself the time and so like i think for a lot of people the problem is they have day jobs they maybe don't have savings that they can lean on or in my case like i had a partner that i could lean on um but if you can give yourself the time you are very self-aware about sort of what success looks like and what uh, how you're marching on the path to it. I really think it's... I've tried to monetize like three products. They're, one of them is like so crazy stupid and like still somehow it's just... It's, it like makes a bit of money. And like, like the fact that is true, it just makes me think that like it's... Like all you need to do is just try and not give up. And I mean, it's like you were saying. <laughs> My advice is the same as your advice, basically. It's I like, happen to love that advice, Corey. <laughs> Probably stole it from you. <laughs> <laughs> well, thanks so much for, for coming on the show and telling us about your journey, Corey. Can you tell us where we can go to find your products and find kind of the space on the internet where you write about the things that you're doing transparently? Yeah, yeah. So uh, tw- so CZU on Twitter, C-Z-U-E, uh, not like the animals. And uh, CoreyZoo.com is where I do, I do my writing. I, I sort of do this like monthly, very like public retrospective process where I like look at all my time and my revenue and everything else um, and uh, so I'm, I'm very transparent about, about all that stuff that's going on yeah and if you need place cards placecard.me <laughs> uh, if you need a Django SaaS template sasspegasus.com thanks so much Corey <laughs> thanks Corey listeners if you enjoyed this episode I would love it if you reached out to Corey and let him know he is at CZU on Twitter that's C-Z-U-E also if you're interested in hearing what I thought about this episode you should subscribe to the Indie Hackers podcast newsletter. You can find that on the website at ndhackers.com slash podcast, or just go to ndhackers.com and click podcast at the top. Thanks so much for listening, and as always, I will see you next time.